It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Chris Foster. American prosperity and military supremacy since the end of World War II has made the U.S. the world's policeman, intervening in global conflicts. A Heritage Foundation report finds our military strength is not what it used to be or needs to be to guarantee American interests are protected. The report's edited by Heritage Foundation senior fellow and retired Marine officer Dakota Wood. He started putting it out annually in 2015. Our conversation about this year's report went on too long to include it all on the regular weekday podcast and radio show. That's what the extra is for. Thanks for listening and subscribing. If you have, we're here every day. Now, Dakota Wood on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Hello, Mr. Wood. Chris Foster here. How are you? Hey, it's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Thanks for doing it. I know it's a bit of short notice, but I guess you would have expected um, a, couple, a couple of phone calls on the day the report comes out, right? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Uh, well, let's get going. Um uh, Dakota Wood with the Heritage Foundation. Let's talk about um, this annual report. There's a, a lot not to like in it. Um, should we be taking away concern or alarm? Well, I think that we're on the alarm side at this point in time. We've been tracking the status of U.S. military capabilities for 10 years now, and it's been a relentless downward slide. So it's half the military is half the size it was during the Cold War. Uh, people aren't flying and driving and shooting enough to maintain competencies. And most of the equipment that our men and women are using was purchased with 1980s money and fielded in the 1990s. So it's just small, old, and unready in a very, very difficult world that you know, we've all been tracking in the news headlines. That sounds suboptimal. Um, uh, the report points out <laughs> that um, for, for everything that happens in the world, pre- predictable or, or not, the condition of our military is something that we actually can control and we're just not doing a good enough job. Yeah, there are things that you can't control. Like, you know, we weren't able to prevent uh, Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. We weren't able to prevent Beijing under Xi from, uh, you know, flying into Taiwan airspace or Iran's nuclear program. So there are things that are outside of your control that you have to take into account. What we can control is how much money we spend on the military, whether we buy new equipment to replace old equipment, whether we make it a noble uh, service for uh, people to join the military. And all those things are problematic. So the one thing that we can control and we have a constitutional obligation to defend the country is the one area where we just seem to be falling off the record, that we're not doing those things that secure our own future. Let's talk about people and talk about stuff. Um, Recruitment continues to be a problem and one that's proving very hard, if not impossible, to remedy. Is there a way to compensate for that or reverse it? Uh, well, you know, compensating or reversing, uh, you do have to c- compete with the job market. So that's a reality. And in recognition of that, Congress voted in a little bit more than a 5% pay increase for those that are currently serving. And that's a good thing. But that's a cost then that has to be borne by the military services. So if the defense budget increase it isn't increased to account for that, then that money that you're now paying more in salaries is being taken from programs, right? So the money part is part of it. But I think there's this cultural idea of whether service to country is a noble and a desired sort of thing. And then do you have a youth population that accepts that and is able to step into that 
role. And right now, I mean, it's been often reported 77%. So three out of every four American youth cannot join the military because of substance abuse, criminal records, mental health, physical health challenges, or obesity. So we've just got a problem culturally within our country that make it harder to get the people you need to join and serve in the military. And then when you do get them in the military, you know, if they're using, let's say you've got a pilot and the airplane that they're flying is older than the pilot flying it. You know, more than half of our ships are greater than 20 years old. The, the tank that the Army uses was introduced in the early 1990s. I mean, it's 30 years old and they don't have a plan to replace it until the year 2050. So there are just these problems across the establishment that make manning, equipping, training and retaining your people uh, problematic. On the equipment side, is this the kind of thing mm-hmm. where, where past decisions – Past bad decisions take so long to remedy themselves. Like, okay, this is the this is the weapon system we're going to go for. These this is the these are the planes. These are the ships we're going to invest in. And if you make a wrong decision, it's very hard to turn that back around. That is absolutely the case. You know, at the end of the Cold War, I know this is history stuff, but it's this time component you're talking about. So at the end of the Cold War, early 1990s, Soviet Union goes away. It was felt that we didn't need a large standing military, as was the case that we needed during the Cold War. So dramatic reductions in size and capacity. So the Army, for example, didn't need to buy a whole lot of new tanks, right? It had fewer people and units. And so if you're the tank manufacturer, but your primary customer isn't buying your product, you start laying off people and bringing production lines to a halt. And so all the parts makers for that thing, they all either go out of business or find other things to do. So if you have to restart production, it's a very long timeline to get that going, and it takes a lot of startup money. It takes five years to train a welder to successfully perform welds on a submarine. So if you want to increase submarine production, you have to recruit somebody to do that job, train them for a number of years before you can even get a final product out the other end. So it's just this time thing that is often hidden from the public because what we've been able to do militarily speaking in the last 20 years was using that military that was built 30 or 40 years ago Right. And you were able to go open against enemies that just didn't pose much of a threat. And today it's just a different world. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Is the military in general underfunded or wasteful or is that just an irrelevant question that, that you know, okay, you're going to lose whatever percentage to waste anyway? Well, you know, I think it's one of those realities of life, but you just don't accept that, right? So, yes, there is bloated uh, uh, spending. There's wasted spending where the military is asked to do things that aren't really relevant to military power or national defense. And you're going to have some level of corruption both in the government and in the, you know, in the manufacturing base. It's just the nature of people. But when you look at the totality from all the studies that have been done, the percentage of the budget lost to, to waste and, and, and bloated spending is a small fraction of what you actually need to be spending. And just as an example, if you compared Vietnam gear to today's gear and adjusted for inflation, a ship cost 500 percent or five, yeah, five times, so 500 percent what its Vietnam predecessor was. And so if your defense budget increases by 5 percent, 
right? The cost of the thing that you're buying just because of technology and what you need it to do is a hundred times more than what would normally be accounted for inflation. And our budgets just aren't accepting that. You know, the anti-ship, anti-tank, anti-platform weapons are much less expensive, but much more capable. And so if you want your tank or ship or airplane to survive, it has to be more capable as well. And it just costs money to get that technology out into the battle space. Yeah, the report mentions inflation, which I hadn't thought about. You think of inflation as a, as a consumer issue and not uh, and not a government issue and certainly not a military issue where they seem to have all the money in the world. But it does make a difference. Well, it does, because, you know, let's say, you know, you're in the company that makes airplanes. Well, you know, your salaries that you're paying to your engineers and maintenance personnel and electricians, those have to keep pace, right? And so that labor cost is rolled into the cost of buying the tank or, or the airplane. If you're going to, you know, shoot weapons and they're going to expend ordnance or ammunition, you know, those rounds that are uh, that are uh, expended also cost money and the missiles and the fuel that airplanes and ships use and the trucks and tanks use as well. So all of these, what we would think of as consumer goods, right, on, on our civilian side are the same kinds of costs uh, that are borne by the military. And the weird thing about the military is there's not a civilian market for a warship you know, or a fighter or a bomber. So it's a weird monopsony, I think is a proper word. We have a single customer, the government, the military services, and the companies have to account for that. They need to maintain a profit margin, pay, you know, pay and salary and benefits to the workers. And so this inflation does affect that over time. Yeah, of course, we don't operate in a vacuum either. Um, The report mentions um, the strength of our military allies, also not good, which in turn adds to our military burden, right? Yeah, and, and you know, we should, as Americans, be righteously angry <laughs> that our allies, like Germany and France and England and others, aren't doing what they should be doing as well. And so we could say, well, fine, we're just going to stay at home. But we're a global power, and we have global interests and trade and access to markets and all that, so we can't just walk away from it. And, and the fact is, our allies are even worse shaped than we are. Uh, just a couple of years ago, Germany had no operationally deployable submarines. In the Cold War, it had 5,000 tanks. Today, it has 300 tanks, and fewer than 100 of those actually work. The Royal Navy only has 20 surface ships, and about half of those are available on any given day. Uh, you know, aircraft manufacturing has declined by something like 70% in France. Uh, Great Britain can only field barely one division of land power, and that composed of two brigades. And the Minister of Defense in Germany said the German military cannot defend Germany itself. So when you start looking at allies, if they were strong and capable, we wouldn't need as much military power. But when they're weak and they have small forces and their you know, populations aren't serving in uniform, then it's just incumbent upon us to take care of ourselves by fielding the capabilities we need to secure our interests. Yeah, and the report also mentions oil. Now, look, we may not be dependent on Middle Eastern oil anymore, but the global economy yeah. still is. And, you, you know, it's not in our interest. You can be isolationist about it and say, OK, we're going to we're fine. Right. We're, you know, we're energy independent. But if, the, if your allies aren't, it's not in our interest to, um, to just let that go. 
I mean, who in the right mind would want to get involved in another war in the Middle East? You know, I mean, it's just crazy talking. But as you say, um, we're relatively energy independent. I think we are producing more oil now than any other country in the world. It's just a weird sort of thing because we have those resources. But Japan imports, Great Britain, Spain, Italy, I mean, all of our trading partners all get oil and energy from the Middle East. So oil goes into a global market. If part of that is cut off, that vast amount that comes from the Middle East, then then the energy price writ large for everybody increases, and you jump to $100, $120, $150 a barrel. So we have a vested national security and national economic interest to make sure that this energy is available to the world because it keeps prices down, our cost of living down. And when things go sideways with Iran or Hamas you know, attacking Israel, it, there are uh, uh, perturbations, there are ripples that come back to affect us negatively, which is why we get involved in these scrapes there in that region. Where does the report find our ability to protect against attacks here on, on U.S. soil? How much does not being in Afghanistan, for example, hurt in that regard in terms of intelligence and not being able to take out guys who might mean us harm? Yeah, so this is the thing. We had a very small number of people in Afghanistan for the few years before we were, you know, pulled out uh, by the Biden administration a few years ago. And, you know, it was uh, advise and assist. But what it also gave us was a geographic position to, to collect intelligence on Iran, on Pakistan, on China, on some of the Central Asian republics. And when you take out your intelligence component that was part of that military presence, you're, you're basically blind. You, you can think that maybe you get something from some kind of an air-breathing you know, surveillance platform or from space, but it's nowhere near as good about being tactically on the ground. And that's just an example. You know, when you have a reduced presence in Europe, reduced presence in Africa and the Middle East, your, your awareness of the world is degraded to the point where these surprises can pop up and you find actual threats against the homeland or even inside of the homeland. You know, I mean, this is something like how 9-11 happened. So it's not interventionist. It's not world policemen. It's not us trying to get involved in everybody's affairs. We're actually securing America's interests by being engaged and being aware and able to shape things that support what we would like the world to be and not have the world dictate to us, you know, what our conditions are in, in, in the spaces we operate in. Does the report get into what the next hot war might be? I know this is sort of a backward-looking report and not a forward-looking report, but I mean, is, mm -hmm. is, is, is Iran going to be such a problem that it needs to be dealt with more directly and not you know, on the margins, like bombing Houthis? Yeah, you know, the, the report is a report card on the existing military. It doesn't say what will happen in the 2030s. But you can see these trends. Right now, Iran has enough enriched uranium at 60% that in 30 days, it could have a half dozen nuclear bombs. So jumping from 60% to 90% technologically is not hard at all. It has the ability to do that. And you've had trace elements detected at 83.7. So it clearly is the case. Iran is near nuclear. It has the missile capabilities to do that. If you have a nuclear-armed Iran, how much more aggressive would it be in supporting its proxies, the various terrorist elements, you know, uh, presenting an even greater threat to Israel? Does that then prompt Israel 
to try to attack Iran before it can get that capability, right? So this this idea that you can deter bad behavior purely through diplomacy or economic incentives has just proven wrong, you know, time and again. And Iran is a, is a case of this, right? You also have Russia invading Ukraine for the last two years, and you've got China that's being very aggressive against Taiwan and North Korea, clearly a nuclear power that nobody wants to mess with. So it's just a very disordered world, and you have to have not just the willingness but the capability, which is military power. And your opponents, the people you're wanting to deter, have to believe that that military power is effective and that you would actually use that if it gets to that particular level. And I think all of that has been damaged over the last uh, six or eight years. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who is not uh, in a military or world affairs think tank, uh, it certainly seems like the world is going to become a more and not less complicated and dangerous place over the next few years. I mean, the 100-year-old borders... Are, are, are going down in, in some cases or could be soon. What happens if all hell just breaks loose and the Middle East escalates and Russia defeats Ukraine and China invades Taiwan? At some point, do you just have to imba- abandon some priorities and say, we can only do so much? Yeah, the vast majority of the federal budget goes to uh, non-discretionary spending. That means, you know, required spending like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and servicing the national debt. So the larger the debt gets, the more more money you you spend on interest. And right now we're spending as much on that as we are on the defense budget, right? So these other things don't secure the country, but they are very popular. You know, if I'm a an older person and I depend on Social Security, I don't want to see those you know, those benefits decline. Or if I you know don't have a very good paying job and, and I'm being helped by the government for medical, you know, care, um, you know, how do you say no to that? So these prioritizations on domestic spending in the last 20 or 30 years have really pressured the defense accounts because that's one area where you can decide not to spend because you can't actually tell me or guarantee me we will be at war at a certain point in time. So if all these things end up going wrong, our military is half the size it was, and it would be unable to deal with that chaos. It would take a long time to build back up, and at that point, you know, the problem proceeds into, you know, into the rearview mirror, and we just have to deal with that new world. So our assessment of the U.S. military has been in a weak condition, means that it is very, very questionable whether or not our military would be able to prevail in one war, much less handle anything anywhere else in the world. Uh, Dakota Wood, formerly a very smart uh, United States Marine, now, uh, <laughs> now a Heritage Foundation senior research fellow, the editor and uh, originator, right, of this um, of the Heritage Foundation's in- index of U.S. military strength. Uh, Dakota, very, uh, thanks a lot. I-, I learned a lot. It was good talking to you. Absolutely. Take care. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown, and now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I've been saving the world for a while now on this podcast, and I'm ready to take it to the next level. Starting on June 26th, you can listen to me, Kennedy, five days a week right here. Listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.